This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian Party's nominee for president. We will talk about her platform, her plan to alleviate civil unrest in America, and why a third-party choice is the right one in 2020. I'll also mention how I am evolving on the police brutality issue, why looting is still wrong, and how I have hope on this nationwide malignance. And now, the Nexus. Joe Jorgensen is the 2020 Libertarian nominee for President of the United States. She is also a senior lecturer in psychology at Clemson University, holding a PhD in industrial organizational psychology from Clemson as well. But she's more than an academic. In 1983, she started her own software sales business. After taking a career sabbatical to raise her two children, she became a partner in a software duplication company, later taking over as president and sole owner. She founded the business consulting company in 2002 and continues working with select clients. Dr. Jorgensen was also the Libertarian Party vice presidential nominee with Harry Brown in 1996. She's running on a ticket that features Spike Cohen as the vice presidential nominee in 2020. Joe Jorgensen, welcome to the Nexus. So glad to be here. I appreciate it. Congratulations on winning the nomination. And um, I'd like to start with something very basic because I think it would be of service to our listeners. Can you tell me what is a libertarian? A libertarian is somebody who believes in live and let live. We believe people have the individual right to make their own choices and they don't need to go through the government. Okay, that's a, an excellent um, description. What do you see as the top two or three issues in this campaign and what's your stance on them? Well, my top three issues are, first of all, health care. And the one thing I want to get out to the American people is that we do not have a free market system. So many people are saying, well, the free market isn't working, so let's go to single payer. But no, if we did go to a free market system, it would work. I'd also like to bring the troops home, turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. And also, I'm for the environment. And I have specific proposals. For instance, we need to uh, deregulate the industry so that nuclear power will flourish. And if you look around the globe, you'll see that wherever there's big government, there's big pollution. More freedom means less pollution. When, going, when you talk about health care, about the free market system, are you saying like a pre-Obamacare kind of structure or something different? Oh, I'm talking pre-World War II, and mm. that was the latest biggest kink, because what happened, and, and when people ask me why I'm running, I tell them because government is too big, too bossy, too nosy, and it often hurts those it tries to help. And this is a classic example. So around World War II, uh, to counteract some problems that they perceived, they had a wage and price freeze control. Well, companies, of course, wanted to retain the best employees and try to hire the best people they could, but they weren't allowed to give them raises or offer them more money. So what they did was they turned to health care. They, they said, well, we'll just offer health insurance. 
And because of that, we are the only industrialized country in the world that has our uh, health care tied to employment, which means you might stick with a job that you hate. You might get a, you might go to a company because they have health insurance, even though it's a job you don't want. And if you're not working for a company that does have health insurance, how are you supposed to, uh, how are you expected to uh, compete with the people who do offer insurance? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and if I, oh, do you mind if I expand on please, that? Please, you yes, please question. do. Yes. So, yeah, to continue with the free market is if you look at the different specialties, the only two specialties that are only somewhat free market would be cosmetic surgery and LASIK surgery. And they're somewhat free market because people pay for them with their own dollars mm. in that rather than the insurance company. And what we have seen over the past 20 years, prices dramatically going down while quality is going up. And that's because the doctors have to compete. The doctor is not going to get any business unless he shows that he or she shows uh, a, a better quality uh, product for less money. And why shouldn't doctors compete? Just like when you go to buy a car or you go to buy a computer, they have to compete for your business and give you the most for your money. So why shouldn't healthcare be the same? Mm, that's that makes uh, lots of sense, actually. Um, you had said about it's such a great catchphrase, but I'd love to unpack it a little bit more. Make us a giant Switzerland. Does that mean we leave our bases in Germany, Japan, and Australia, and all across the globe, or do we maintain a peaceful presence anywhere? How does that work? Basically, I want to bring all of the troops home. Now, is it possible that we need to be somewhere? Maybe, you know, maybe if I'm president, I will find out we need to be a few places. But the default answer is we come home. And you mentioned, for instance, places in Europe. Europe is wealthy enough. Let them maintain their own military. Why do we need taxpayers in America paying for Europe's military? And if you look at the Middle East, it's actually causing problems. What's ironic is that the military's purpose, their sole purpose, is to protect us. But by meddling everywhere else, they're actually making us less safe. So I say turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. Hmm. And, um, but I also think, and you say armed and neutral, yeah, that's, your stance on gun ownership and possession, I'd like to get into. Yeah, well, and, Tell me okay, about that. And, and if you, yes, well, first, if you don't mind, let me just uh, expand on the, because you pointed out armed and neutral. So that does not mean we're pacifists. I do want to defend American soil. And it also doesn't mean that we're isolationist. I want to be like Switzerland. We trade with people. We have tourists. And we just um, maintain a neutrality that keeps us safe. But yes, the Second Amendment, I'm for the Second Amendment. I am a gun owner myself, and I would get rid of every law that I could that's been enacted in the last hundred years. Any executive order that I could get rid of, I would. The other ones I would work with Congress to get rid of. Hmm. Good stuff. Um, let's turn to the the current civil unrest I mean, are mm -hmm. protest warranted or riots what what's what's going on with that what's your feelings about all of that that's happening 
Well, let me say protests are warranted if people feel they're warranted, if they feel their voice isn't being heard. That's an excellent way to make them heard. Uh, rioting, violence is never warranted. And what I'm seeing happen is, and, and the, the clips that I've been watching on TV, it looks like it is a separate group of opportunists who are basically hijacking the free protest, the uh, peaceful protest movement for their own activities. So we've basically got, you know, opportunists hijacking the, the protests. So it's fine with me to protest. We've got to get rid of the criminals. We've by get rid of. I mean, we've got to find them, arrest them, and lock them up. I mean, do you think that the goals of the peaceful protesters to affect structural change in policing are noble goals? Are they things that you support? Oh, of course they're noble. And what's frustrating to me is they're going to the very people who cause the problems. Um, a lot of people are bringing up racism as a problem. And I'd like to point out that the government has had uh, racist laws in there for hundreds of years. And if you look at when the slaves were first freed, many slaves went out and they offered their services, which were excellent services, by the way, because... Um, they were the ones who did a lot of the work. So we've got excellent craftsmen out there offering their services at a lower price to get business, which mm -hmm. is what I did from when I started my company. I offered prices at a lower cost so that people would try me out. And the whites could not compete. So instead of saying, well, I guess we got to lower our prices as well, they instead enacted Jim Crow laws. They set up barriers uh, for the blacks so that they couldn't compete. And even up to, to the last century, um, I'm sure you've heard of Rosa Parks, maybe even talked about her. Sure. She is the hero. Yeah, she is the hero who stood up and refused to sit in the back of the bus. What a lot of people don't do is they don't tell the rest of the story, which is that was a government-owned, government-run bus. And 70% of the ridership at the time were blacks. So if we let's modernize it and look at an example now with Uber. Um, what if you were Uber and you discriminated against your best customers? How long would you stay in business? You would probably go out of business as well you should because in the private free enterprise system, there's accountability. If you don't please your customer, then you lose that customer and you go out of business as well you should. With the government, though, there's no accountability and they can't go out of business. Hmm. Along those lines, then, what's your take on the defund police movement that has bubbled up a lot in the last week or so? Well, first of all, well, a few things. First of all, libertarians do believe in police courts and military, that that is the purpose of government. However, I am running at a federal level, and as president... I would say it's not my job to go in there and tell them how to run or how to fund their police departments. That's a local issue. And I'd like to point out that crime and police are both local issues because we're talking about assault, burglary, robbery, so forth. I would only step in if it warranted it. So, for instance, when George Wallace stood on the steps and refused to let blacks into the college, 
uh, absolutely the federal government should have been involved. I don't see a reason for the federal government to get involved yet if they defund police. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. That's uh that's a, a unique take and that's that's a good one. Um Yeah. And well they've got sheriffs, they've got other methods. So again, um now, now keep in mind I say that crime is a local level. That's because the only crimes that we should have are crimes in which there is a victim, such as burglary and robbery. We need to get rid of all of these drug laws that cause more problems than they solve. We need to have the government stop funding local police forces, stop giving them military tanks and training and so forth so that the police can act like police. And I just mentioned accountability. If you think about it, um, if you live in whatever town, or, you know, whether it's 5,000 people or 50,000 people, if there were a government referendum that asked you, okay, do you want your property taxes to go up so we can buy a tank <laughs> or something like that? You would probably vote no. You'd probably say, no, I'd rather, you know, go ahead and raise my taxes for schools, but I don't need a tank. But what happens is the federal government takes our money and then they buy the tanks and then they go back to the police departments and they say, hey, do you want a free tank? And you hate to turn them down because it's free and it's your tax dollars. Uh, but that's how the federal government isn't accountable in that people have paid their taxes and they're getting something they don't want, which is a tank. Right, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> and you touched on this a minute ago. Tell me more about this idea of um, not prosecuting victim victimless crimes. Um, very intriguing notion and having to do with drug laws and all that sort of stuff. Can you expand on that a little bit? Oh, sure. If you look at the drug laws, prohibition, just as alcohol prohibition in the last century, prohibition is what's been causing the problems. Uh, well, not, I mean, yes, there are addiction problems. And, and I should mention, I have a graduate certificate in drug and alcohol studies. But what I'm saying is, from a policy standpoint, when's the last time you heard of a liquor store owner going into the school playground or in the halls of the high school trying to sell gin? Or when's the last time you heard of somebody breaking into houses because they had to uh, support their vodka habit? Uh, <laughs> when's the last time? Yeah, when's the last time you saw two liquor stores having a machine gun fight out in the streets because one of them got on the other? person's corner. No, all of that is from drug prohibition, not drug use. So instead of having a drug war, I'd like to declare a drug peace in which the rest of us are safer. Um, I don't use drugs, never have. My drug of choice is bourbon, which by the way, is much more uh, detrimental, much more lethal than marijuana. So um, I can use my drug of choice how I want to. So why wouldn't people be able to use marijuana? M me sitting at home drinking my bourbon in peace does not cause any problems for anybody else. And yet back in the 1920s when we had alcohol prohibition, money that uh, was made to, uh, to support alcohol went into organized crime. And that's really how organized crime got a big footing in our country. Mm. Um, shifting to coronavirus, would you say is a robust government response warranted? 
not the robust one we got, that's for sure. <laughs> so the, uh, this is the biggest assault in liberty that I've seen in my lifetime. It, it was ridiculous. Uh, there are two things that I would have done completely different than Trump. First of all, with the FDA, and this kind of gets back to health care. A lot of people don't realize, but until 1962, drugs only had to prove they were safe to get approved. Now you have to prove efficacy, which sounds like a noble cause, right? You want a drug to work. But in order to pass through all the standards, drugs can, it, it can take a million dollars up to a billion dollars just to approve a single drug. And, you know, since you are a professor, you know about um, randomized controlled trials, you mm -hmm. know how difficult it is to have double blind studies. Well, not only how difficult, but how expensive it is right. to hold all of these. So, um, so what we have now is we have an FDA that keeps blocking drugs and they block testing kits. We had over 60 companies, American companies making testing kits and the FDA only approved two of them. And what happened was all these other testing kits basically went around the world and there were other countries that were doing a much better job than we were at controlling the virus because they had more testing kits. And these were testing kits that Americans themselves weren't allowed to use. So we've got American ingenuity helping the rest of the world and not us. So if I were Trump with an emergency powers act, I would have gotten rid of that efficacy requirement with the FDA. And the second thing he did was early on, back when they thought that uh, maybe 60 to 80% of the cases were asymptomatic, Mm -hmm. He, in a press conference, said, you don't need to get tested if you don't get if you don't have symptoms. You only need to get tested if you have symptoms. Well, there are all these people walking around, no symptoms at all, who are spreading the virus to other people. Mm -hmm. So if we had had testing, if he had said, look, stay home until you get tested, then we would have known who needed to stay home and who could go outside. And instead, we had people who were going out spreading uh, the virus because they didn't know they had it because we didn't have the testing. Right. Right. Would you be in favor of a vaccine if it comes on the market? Well, that's up to individuals. Just like we've got flu shots. For most people, it's their choice. So if people want to get a vaccine, that's fine. Now, I would rather have private companies develop it because they can do it for much for a much lower cost because again accountability uh government doesn't have accountability if prices go up uh all they do is tax people more so I want to see people held accountable Mhm mm Um Shifting gears, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld did very well four years ago on the libertarian line. How do you plan to build on that? Well, I'd like to first qualify that with they did very well in votes. And we are a political party, so absolutely we need to go after votes. And some states need the votes just to retain ballot access. But I think a very close second is growing the movement, getting more people into the movement so that we have not only votes for the president, but so that we have votes for state and local and other offices as well. So we have more county commissioners. So we have more state house reps. And if you look at the numbers, 
Uh, Harry Brown and I, in 1995, 1996, we doubled the party size. We brought in 8,500 new members, which is the largest growth in party history, mm. whereas uh, Gary Johnson brought in 7,500 members. So that wasn't quite as, as large of an increase. And we need to bring in more people. So how are we doing that? Well, by getting our message out, I've got great social uh, media people. And I'm just going on as many interviews as I can. And I really appreciate being on yours. And I'd like to mention that we are just overwhelmed and ecstatic by how many non-libertarians are signing up to vote for my campaign. And we're hearing kind of echoes of what we hear in the media. You know, in the media, we keep hearing how there's two old, rich, white guys running. And a lot of people are joining saying, you know what, we don't want an old, rich, white guy. And we are the only alternative choice. If you look at ballot access, we, like the Democrat and Republican parties, are the only ones who typically are on the ballot in all 50 states. Right. Absolutely. I mean, does anyone, though, worry or do you feel like um, you could be just serving as a spoiler for Vice President Biden or President Trump? Well, a lot of people have the mistaken idea that we pull more from the right. But actually, we in most elections, we tend to get just as many Democrats as we do Republicans. However, most people are either independents or people who traditionally don't vote. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, all the polls were wrong with Donald Trump, because the pollsters weren't polling people who had either never voted or hadn't voted in 20 years. And all those people were basically saying, you know, we don't want the same old, same old, it's just not worth it to vote. And then he comes in and positions himself as an outsider. And what I'd like to say to the Trump voters is I completely understand why you thought it was worthless to vote for all those years and how you want an outsider to come in. However, he ran as a Republican, and we just get the same old Republican big spending. So if you really want an alternative, if you really want an option, then the Libertarian Party is the only option. And along those lines, what do you say to the young people who are just disgusted by the never-ending two-party system? Oh, I would say you have a home. I would absolutely say you have a home that I understand why you're disgusted. And what's funny is I'm running on basically uh, on, on similar things as 1996. Of course, we weren't as close to a single payer system. But back in 1996, we were asking Democrats, wouldn't you like peace? Wouldn't you like to get out of all the wars? And we were asking the Republicans, you know, you keep asking for smaller government. They're not giving it to you. Because I always make a distinction between the many fine Republican voters and the Republican politicians who keep giving them bigger government. So I say you're not getting what you want from them. Try us. And let me ask one last question, if that's okay. Um, oh. Im immigration. Very hot topic that will continue to be one in, in 2020. Can you talk about your immigration stance? Is, I, I, I've read some about it. It seems potentially somewhat controversial. If you could talk about that, I would, I would love it. 
Well, I can understand why people today might think it's controversial, but what they don't realize is I want to go back to where we were before the 1920s. Three of my grandparents are immigrants, and they came over before America shut shut its borders in the 1920s. So before the 1920s, we had open borders, and our country thrived because of it, because they got hardworking people over like my grandparents who wanted a better life for themselves. And I know that the media has has been trying to scare people with statistics. Actually, uh, somebody... Uh, uh, more people who are born on American soil commit crimes than people born on foreign soil who move here. So the crime rate is actually higher for people native to America. And also, if you look at uh, the economic impact, overall, we have a positive economic impact by having immigrants come over to our country. Hmm. And Jorgensen is obviously a European <laughs> name. I'm trying to, when you said yes. three of your, uh, your relatives, your, um, you know, grandparents, wh- where did they come from? So the Jorgensen came from Denmark, which is why it's S-E-N instead of S-O-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, my name is always misspelled. People try to make it uh, S-O-N. Mm. So that grandfather's from Denmark along with, um, his wife, my grandmother, and then my other grandfather is from Sweden. Ah, there aren't uh, rivalries between those countries whatsoever. But. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and, and, oh, yeah. And, and can I add, yes. here's the irony. Here's the irony. If you look at the virus, my grandfather's family came over from Sweden because they were looking for freedom, mm. just like many people who came over here. And yet during the virus, the Swedish government never locked up their people. People were allowed to go to restaurants. They could go to school. They could go to shopping malls. And yet they come to our country, uh, land of the free, home of the brave, and we're all under house arrest. So <laughs> how's that for irony? <laughs> that is a highly ironic um, statement. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, let me say that Joe Jorgensen will be found on the Libertarian line for president this election day, November 3rd. You can go to joj2020.com to learn more. That's joj2020.com. Dr. Jorgensen, thank you so much for joining me in the Nexus. Oh, it was great. Thanks for having me. And we will be right back. Social progress often happens in fits and starts, one step forward and then two steps back. And then things often accelerate rapidly. We've seen this in recent decades with gay marriage and marijuana legalization, as the forward movement of both has been startling. As recently as the 2000s, majorities of Americans were opposed to both. Now we're at the cusp of another dramatic move forward. You all know about the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. What has followed has been a remarkable confluence of protests, riots, looting, troops in the streets, cops abusing protesters, looters roughing up innocent people, an attorney general ordering the violent dispersal of a protesters all for a president to cross a street and hold up a Bible. What has this given birth to? That social leap forward. We've seen progress against police brutality and the abuse of black Americans before. 
The Trayvon Martin death and the imbroglio in Ferguson, Missouri, were moments of enlightenment and advancement, but then in recent years, this legitimate cancer on our country seemed to be left untreated. And now there's George Floyd and the real reform wished for in so many cities in the mid to late 2010s may actually be coming true. I've always been a supporter of law enforcement. Personally and professionally, I've worked with many cops, agents, and assorted officers. I am steadfast in my belief that most cops are good people. Sure, I've seen the stories on the news about police brutality in years past, but I always chalk them up to one bad apple spoiling the bunch. As a white guy, I don't have to deal with this stuff on a daily basis, or really at all. Yet the sordid episode in Minneapolis has forced me to admit certain things I've known deep down but didn't want to say out loud. It's not just 1% of cops who are abusive. The percentage in some departments across the country is much more than that. When a cop messes up, the police unions fight tooth and nail to keep the cop not only out of jail, but also on the job. Even if it's clear cut, they violated another person. Right now, the police union in Minneapolis is fighting to keep the four cops who killed or abetted the killing of George Floyd on the job. How is this possible? Entrenched systemic bargaining power that assumes all police are justified no matter what. Police have something called qualified immunity, which is a legal doctrine in United States federal law that shields government officials from being sued for discretionary actions performed within their official capacity unless their actions violated clearly established federal law or constitutional rights. This is another tool of protecting bad officers and must be reviewed if not repealed. In Buffalo, New York, where a 75-year-old man approached police officers during a protest and was knocked down with blood coming out of his ear, the P Buffalo PD said the gentleman tripped and fell. And when the officers in question were suspended, the police union doubled down and said the city was trying to screw them. And 57 officers on the elite team that encountered the elderly man promptly resigned the team because they didn't like cops getting in trouble for simply executing orders. And therein lies the problem. The orders to dispense protesters, no matter how you do it, includes a young man pushing a much older man down. He was just following orders. The rot that consumes departments like Buffalo and Minneapolis doesn't come from a handful of rogue cops acting like cowboys or vigilantes. It comes from the top. Top brass sending the message that it's okay to violate an American's constitutional right to protest, absolving the individual officers from responsibility. In Buffalo, the cop pushed the man down, and another cop tried to help the bleeding man up and was shooed away by a third cop who told the helper cop to keep moving. It was only a National Guardsman who came to the aid of the old man. Thankfully, he did. As a lifelong supporter of the police, I've never said things like this out loud before. Why? Maybe because I wanted to believe the one bad apple theory. Maybe I didn't want to offend my friends, family, and colleagues. Maybe I'm a little racist. I don't really know. What I do know is that I've opened up my mind and I'm willing to discuss this after acknowledging there is a problem. It's tough for good cops to stop a bad situation, orders and all. We have to ensure then that the orders that are given are moral, ethical, and most importantly, legal. But we must also acknowledge that looting and rioting are wrong too. 
I'm seeing a lot of the narrative turning into all protests are peaceful. And even if they become riots or businesses are looted, that's okay too. No, it's not okay. Causing fear and terror does not affect change. Massive peaceful protests do. A million Americans descending peacefully on the nation's capital during the Vietnam era helped turn the tide against that war, and they didn't need to loot to do it. What they did was hold sustained protests over a period of years, showing they were large in number, but working as one. Looters and rioters retard social protest, making lots of people secretly or not so secretly wish for the police to crack down. It's a cycle we don't want to happen now. Often I'm hearing, we tried nonviolent methods and now we have to try something else. I strongly disagree. Martin Luther King never went the rioting route and so much social change could be credited to him. When it comes to protests, we should look to the positive elements of social change in the 1960s, Vietnam resistance, and Dr. King. Lastly, I'm encouraged by a Monmouth University poll this week that said 76% think racial and ethnic discrimination is a big problem in the United States, up from 51% in 2015. Look at that. In five years, we've gone from only half of the country saying racism was a big problem to three quarters of the country. That's obviously not only black and Latino people saying this either. Everyone is starting to realize there's a problem, and this is fertile ground for lasting reform. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald, who is now a brand new lieutenant in the United States Army. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Thank you for listening and be well.